take one more before we dive into our study. Anybody else? Just a yay God or an everyday miracle, big or small? Yes, ma'am. Okay, I am very thankful that Father is in tune with me. He is getting me help with my knee, my right knee. I'm going to get a brace on it. I've got an appointment for next Wednesday, and I'm going to be walking eventually without a cane. And just a real quick, Mac is doing a wedding for his niece tonight. Many of y'all know Mac and Liz McKinney. They were here. He was one of our elders, and, and uh, they got a job transfer. And so they're serving in a church up there. He's now kind of on staff. He's doing a sort of a kind of a layman's position on this church there, just really getting to, to walk out and do what he loves to do. So it's a blessing. Thanks for sharing that. All right, let's pray together and we'll get started. Great to see everybody. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the privilege the privilege of gathering tonight and for the freedom that we have that we can come up here on a Wednesday night without fear, without concern. But Father, we, we live in a place where we have the freedom to do so, and I'm just so thankful. And I'm thankful for every person that's here tonight, Lord, as we dive in and look at your word. Father, would you speak to us and would you teach us? So would you open our eyes truly that we may see would you open our ears that we may literally hear your voice? Would you open our hearts that we may know the truth, the truth that makes us free? And so, Lord, we receive, we posture ourselves as disciples tonight. In the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen and amen. Well, welcome. We are now, we're still in chapter three. We're going to cover baptism tonight. So chapter three, if you have your, your book there. Uh, the purple book, and if you need a purple book and you don't have one, the way we're doing this, it's kind of it's kind of a revolving train or like a merry-go-round. You can jump on at any time because it's one of those things where it doesn't matter if you haven't done the first chapter, or the first two, or whatever. You can jump on and start right where you are, and then when we're done with this portion of this as a class or as a group, then you can continue and just go back, or you can go back and do it on your own. So it's the way that purple book is designed. It's designed for anybody can do it by yourself, you can do it with another person, or like we're doing with a group. So it's designed that way. And so the Purple Book is going to be our first step as, as we step into and become our own church, uh, be sharing the name shortly. Some of you already know, I haven't kept it a secret per se, uh, just not announcing it publicly. But, uh, but as we make that turn, just mark your calendars, August 25th, that Sunday, Max will be with us. He'll be preaching both services here and then also kind of passing the baton on to Annette and I and the team here. And so he'll be here to pray with us and bless us. But as we make the turn, one of the things that's been, a, I guess, such a heartbeat of mine, not just here, but for my entire walk with Jesus, has been uh, in most churches I've been a part of, not all, but most, there's not been a strong uh, value for discipleship. Now, we would say we, we're, we have a strong value for discipleship, but if you have a value, you have to value your values, right? If you don't value your values, it's not a value. Does that make sense? So you can have core values and have a great mission statement, but if you're not actually doing that or leaning into it or being intentional, because how many of you know most things do not happen on accident, right? 
Most growth doesn't happen on accident. Most development and movement forward doesn't happen on accident. Well, let me tell you something. Discipleship doesn't happen on accident. No more than if you walk into a McDonald's, that makes you a Big Mac, or walk into your garage, it makes you a car. It's literally not just showing up, but it's being intentional and leaning in as a follower of Jesus to say, Lord, I want everything you have for me. I have to tell a quick story, and I cannot remember. This might be a Max Lucado. You know, Max has been ripped off so many times. I, I probably told 20 Max Lucado stories and didn't even know they were Max Lucado stories. I'm going to ask him someday. But I believe it's Pastor Rick Warren that told this story the first time or when I heard it. And Pastor Rick's out at Saddleback Community Church in Mission Viejo, California. And uh, he told the story that every year he his his dad his brother and his grandfather and a couple of uncles had a tradition where they would go down to the coast and go fishing and they would take a little trailer that they could pull, like a little fifth wheel down there, and they would go every year, and it just kind of became a highlight of their summer. And one year, they, they were loading up, getting ready to go, and, uh, and Rick and his brothers and his cousins, they're all loaded up. They all went down to the coast, and it was pouring rain the first day. So they get down there, and they set up on the beach, just off the beach there, and they're anticipating the next day, hoping... Uh, that, you know, there'll be clear weather and they'll be able to, to get out and go fishing. It rained all night. They woke up the next morning, pouring rain. So they broke out the cards, the checkers, the chess. They, they started just making a t you know, time of it there. They cooked up what little food they had because they'd planned to eat fish because that's what they do. They're going to do a big fish fry. This is every year. Third day, they wake up, it's pouring rain. He said, you know, the first day or two was okay. They survived it because they kept anticipating a break in the weather. But when the weather didn't break, he said, suddenly things started getting tense in that little trailer. Everybody started getting on each other's nerves. He said, suddenly feet started smelling, things, body, you know, just body. He goes, you're in a trailer full of guys anticipating. The, and, and now he said, now we're getting on everybody's nerves. He said, by the fourth day when we woke up and it was pouring rain, he said, we were downright fighting. And he said, you know, we came away from that trip. He said, we did not get to go fishing. He said, we ended up fighting. He said, as he was driving back and he was frustrated, praying out loud in the car, and the Lord spoke to him and he said, you know what? Fishermen that don't fish fight. And he said immediately he understood the application. He said this, that we have been called to be fishers of men. That is who we are. That is what we're designed to be. We're designed to be worshipers and live in a relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ and living and operating by the spirit, being spirit-empowered people. And we've been called to be fishers of men. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. You're to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've taught you. And I'll be with you even until the end of the age. We were born to fish. But let me tell you something. Even in the church, when we're not on mission, when fishermen don't fish, they what? It's interesting how when we're not fishing, when we're not doing an on-mission for Jesus, called us to be disciples who make disciples. And when we're not doing that, we get picky. We, our feet start to smell, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> In a weird way.
That means we start noticing things we didn't notice before. Things get on our nerves. Things bother us. Suddenly we don't like the way that works in the service, or we don't like the sound of that, or we don't like the temperature in the room. And have you ever been in a church where all the fishermen weren't fishing, they were just fighting? Let me tell you what will keep a church from fighting and, and walking in disunity. It's to stay on mission for what we're called to do. Because let me tell you something, when you're on mission for God, you don't care about the building. You don't care about the temperature. You don't care about the sound level. You don't care about the preaching. Because it's not about the preacher or the preaching. It's not about the worship leader or the worship. It's not about the youth pastor or the youth. It's about being on mission with Jesus, with a bunch of people who are moving the same way. Amen? So never forget that. Fishermen that don't fish, fight. You ever find yourself getting grumpy in church? You need to ask yourself a question. Am I fishing? Am I on mission? Am I doing what Jesus told me to do? I guarantee you 99 out of 100 times when somebody, when we have a disgruntled church member, it's because they're not fishing. They're not doing what they're called to do. So I say that to you in love because this is a discipleship class. So I'm talking to a group of people here who are cut above in the sense that you're here on a Wednesday night when you could be watching all kinds of stuff, Chicago PD, uh, Chicago, what? All three of them. What's one? Chicago Med, Chicago Fire. I mean, I, we love all those shows. That's why we have a DVR. Hallelujah. So you could be home doing that, but instead you're here just allowing yourself to just say, I'm here. I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow. And I want to be a disciple who makes disciples. So thank you for being here. But just keep that in mind. We need to be on mission for Jesus. Because I'm telling you, happy Christians are those that are on mission. Frustrated Christians are those who are not. Amen? Does that make sense? So as we jump in tonight, we're going to talk about baptism. Now, I'm talking to a church who has a heritage where baptism, baptism is a high value. And so it's a high value for me too because even the denomination I came out of were called Baptists, okay? I mean, that, that's, that's about as high value as you can get when you name your whole denomination after it. So in chapter 3 in the Purple Book, I want to read this quote by Francis Chan. We shared it a couple times ago, but listen to this. I love this. He says, we reduce discipleship to a canned program, and so many in the church end up sidelined in a spectator mentality that delegates disciple-making to pastors and professionals, ministers and missionaries, but this is not the way it's supposed to be. Making disciples is far more than a program. It is the mission of our lives. Oh, lock that into your heart. Lock that into your heart. Making disciples is far more than a program. It is the mission of our lives. It defines us. A disciple is a disciple maker. Being a disciple of Jesus means that we are being transformed into his image. God wants to change us so much that it intrigues others. We've talked a lot about this. So I, won't, I won't beat this into the ground, but we're to live a life that's so compelling not perfect, remember our sign, not perfect, we don't have it all together, but there's something about our life that's compelling. What it means is that when the winds and the waves beat against that house, as it says in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount, ends with this great story of the winds that were beating on the house, and he said the house that was built on the rock, on solid rock, stood while the one that was built on sand collapsed. And the Bible even says, and great was its destruction. 
destruction. And so we who have built our lives on the rock, on Jesus Christ, and continue to sow into our lives discipleship, learning the scripture, being people of the Bible, people of the word, people of prayer, valuing what he values. Not just valuing what feels good, but valuing what God values. Then he can touch that, bless it. And listen, when the waves come and the wind comes and they beat against your house, your house won't fall. You won't fall. And I always say it this way, you may be bent, but you'll never be broken. Amen? And that's our heart as disciples, as followers of Jesus. Chapter 3, Lesson 3, uh, we've been talking about repentance, and that's what we ended with last week. So I want to give just this little, little uh, caveat right into that. The hope of every believer is that Christ's work in us, in us is more powerful than our past or our current struggles and temptations. Amen? Now, notice he's, he's not saying that we won't have struggles and that we won't have temptations. That's not even realistic. The reason why the Lord says that we fight the good fight of faith, when, when uh, Paul wrote Timothy, he said, fight the good fight of faith, is because there's a fight to be fought. Does that make sense? If there's a fight to be fought, that, that means and indicates there's an enemy that is coming against us. There's opposition, Right? So we know there's an enemy. We know we've been called to war. We were born into a world of war, according to John Eldridge. So we know that all these factors to come together, which means there's something to deal with. So here it is. I love this. Christ's work in us is more powerful than our past or our current struggles and temptations. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ through you, the hope of glory. In and through. The picture of salvation, the Bible paints is not just a glorious deliverance, but God's Spirit empowering us to live new lives. Love that sentence. The next important step in our journey is to follow Christ in baptism. Back up to that sentence. The picture of salvation the Bible paints is not just a glorious deliverance. What's beautiful is that we are delivered, right? We're set free by Jesus Christ. The truth will make you free. We're set free. We are delivered. But it's not just an event. It's a process. The process is called sanctification in theological terms. To be sanctified is to be set apart day by day and in ever-increasing measures. That means I'm not where I'm going to be, but I'm not where I used to be. Amen? And I celebrate that. Whether it's a millimeter or a mile, I say, thank you, Lord. Yay, God. Thank you that you love me so much that you allow me to have movement in my life. And I, I may not have grown three feet. I was looking at that silly plant that I talked about. Uh, it's called a century plant, right? I was looking at it. We were looking at it in my driveway. Don was looking at it this morning. He rode over to San Antonio with us today. And just that thing is amazing. That stalk is this big around. And it's just an amazing plant that just literally was dormant for the first year and a half that we were in the house, and then suddenly it exploded, and it grew like 12 feet in one year. It was amazing. What's the same way for us? There are times when it doesn't appear that anything's moving or growing, but oh, it's coming. It's coming. Something's happening. And when it happens, it really happens. So we're going to talk about baptism. So chapter 3 is lesson 4, water baptism. So let's talk a little bit about that. If you take a trip to Israel and tour the ancient land where Jesus lived and ministered, you'll discover that the world of the Bible included the concept, the concept of ritual bathing. Men and women would wash ceremonially to cleanse themselves from the dirt and defilement 
of the outside world. Jesus and his disciples came preaching and calling people to be baptized in water to symbolize the cleansing that takes place through their faith. In other words, be cleansed, be made clean. The word baptizo or baptizomai, depending on which, which form you're reading it in, in the Greek, literally means to be immersed. It means to be overwhelmed by or overcome. So it literally means to be pressed down in. For example, if they were looking out over the Mediterranean Sea and they saw a ship out in the harbor and it sank, it was being baptizomai. It was being immersed. It was a full sink. And so anytime this word was used, they understood that it was something being sunk, being taken down under the water and completely covered over. So we talked about earlier about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, not with the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. So we're baptized in the water, the water of the Spirit, that's being covered over, overwhelmed. Same word. So now we're talking about baptism in water. And so that's one of the things that, frankly, is one of my favorite things we do here. Whenever we have a baptism service, whether it's one person getting baptized or 10 or 15, like we had on Easter, it is one of, it's one of the things where I'm just, it's waterworks for me. I just can't help it. It's, it's like, it's when the fisherman gets to see the fish coming in and getting filleted, right? We're about to have a fish fry. I mean, that's kind of the feeling of just, uh, this is what it's about. This is what makes us happy. This is what gives us joy is when we see what God's doing. We see the Lord doing what he does. And as fishermen, fishers of Jesus, we get to see that. I can't even imagine. He said 160 were baptized. Were, were, were there some grown men standing around there crying? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It was waterworks, wasn't it? And it wasn't just the baptismal waters. That's beautiful. We did a play one time when we were out in Southern California called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Has any of you ever heard of that? It's this wild, scare you into heaven kind of thing. It's a, it's a production that a company comes in, and they take all these volunteers from your church, and they train you for like a week. And you do this play, you memorize lines, and they've got special effects, and they transform your worship center into one side looks like heaven, one area looks like hell, and, and then there's all these encounters with drug addicts and prostitutes, and, and it's just, and it, it, what it does, you invite the community in, you make a big deal, you promote it, and it's huge. We had thousands of people come to our church in Southern California, and we did it for like five nights in a row. It was crazy. Yeah, it went longer because it, we kept having sellout productions, and so we just kept going, and it was crazy. We ended up baptizing, or actually over 700 people gave their hearts to Christ during that time. And these are some that were, you know, Pete and repeat, you know, people who had come, had given their lives to the Lord, but they were convicted, so they came and rededicated. There were others who were first-time salvations. I've never sensed spiritual warfare so strong in my life. I mean, it was just intense. But it was amazing because as the gospel was going forth, people were responding. And these were people from the community. And so what happened is we did a baptism service, and in that service we baptized several hundred people. And our daughter Alicia was one that got baptized during that. And I got to baptize her in a horse trough. So it was really, we were grabbing anything that would hold water because we had so many to baptize. And so we just had them lined up and, and filled up and 
dirt and grass and mud. It was just beautiful. It was a beautiful, dirty experience, but it was so incredible watching all these people get baptized. And again, it's that sense of this is what we do. This is what we're here for. And that's just the process of baptism. But then after that comes discipleship, where we continue to walk with people. Jesus would command his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We know that. So, number one, what happened to those who accepted Peter's message? So, Peter at Pentecost, if you'll remember, in our study of Acts, stands up and preaches the first gospel message, the first pure gospel message. Right after the Holy Spirit or was, the Holy Spirit was about to descend, he stands up, he preaches, and then in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, those who accepted his message were baptized. In other words, there wasn't a delay. There wasn't a let's wait and see, and well, maybe in a couple of years, maybe I might do it later. There was actually this sense of receiving the gospel, receiving the good news, receiving the good news of salvation, receiving the good news of what Jesus did for them, and then it was like, let's get baptized. Let's do this. So there wasn't a wait. It always has bothered me just a little bit when someone comes forward and literally says, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I'm going all in, and you say, great, your next step is baptism. Well, I don't know about that. Like, what do you mean you don't know about that? When I got born again, I don't know about your experience. I got saved at 19 and it was like, where's the water? I, I, I'm supposed to get baptized. And so I gave my heart to Jesus leaning over the hood of my pickup. And one week later, I was at First Baptist Church, Post Texas, and Pastor Reese baptized me with friends and teachers and family cheering me on. I couldn't wait. I was so excited because uh, it was real to me, and I wanted, so I, my, my question was, because it was so radical for me, I was like, what do I do next? What do I do now? What's next? I kept asking. I was bugging them. I wanted to know, because I, when I went all in with Jesus, I went all in, and I was like, what next? Just tell me what to do. Well, you need to get baptized. All right, let's do it. What do I need to do? Show up, wear shorts, and bring a t-shirt. I'm good to go. I'll bring a towel and all that. Man, I was so excited. And then we did it. It was beautiful. And then, then I go to Steve McMeans, who was the youth pastor at the time. He's now the pastor at Indiana Avenue Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas. But at the time, he was a youth pastor there. And I'm like, Steve, what do I do now? What do I do now? He, get, he started handing me material. Go, I just read this book. Read this book. And then in the midst of that, somebody gave me the survival kit for new Christians, which was an awesome little booklet that, that really helped me in those initial days. And I just poured myself into it. And then I was running around finding Christians. You got to understand. I knew nothing, but I am so hungry. I was ravenous. So I'm going around finding Christians. I, I, it would be like me to come up to you in church and just say, what, what do I do now? I've only been, I've been a Christian for a month and I already read through everything Pastor Steve gave me. Do you have something for me to read? I mean, I was so desperate and people were handing me stuff. I was reading tracts and and booklets, and somebody sent me the first day's news, last day's newsletter by Keith Green. Anybody remember that? Somebody sent me that, and I was like, this is awesome. It was so fiery. But so it was amazing. I was just on this journey, and I was so hungry. So always look for signs of repentance in that, are you hungry for God's word? Are you hungry for God? Do you want what he wants? Do you, are you ready to go on mission? When we were in a part of every nation, which was, was, had a big influence on our lives for 13 years, what was really cool was seeing college students come to faith in Jesus Christ and how on fire they were. And it was like, 
All they wanted was a Bible and a passport and a purple book, and they were ready to go plant churches in Thailand. I mean, it was like they were so hungry for God and so ready to go. And uh, we recently got to meet with a couple of our what we call campus pastors. It's not, we call campus ministers here. It's a different thing. We're talking about college campus. They go and they make, they build groups, discipleship groups on college campuses, and they lead students to Christ, and then they disciple them. And the whole point is to make disciples. Why? Because that's what Jesus told us to do. I will make you fishers of men. You'll lead them to Christ, catch them, and then you will disciple them, clean them. So we catch, we clean. We don't catch and release. We catch and we clean. That's what we're called to do. And when we're on mission with him, remember, fishermen who don't fish, what? But fishermen who do fish, they're on mission with Jesus, and they're fulfilled because they're doing what they're called to do. Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000? 3,000 in one day? Look, I've been on those steps where Peter preached that first message. The steps of the temple are still there, by the way. They're actually marble. And they're worn from <laughs> centuries of people walking up and down them. And they told me not to, they said, and don't take anything from here. So I found a teeny pebble, just a pebble. Just, I just took a little pebble because I want a piece of that step. I still have it. And, uh, and I took it with me. But I remember just standing there on the steps and realizing, and I've shared this before, how Peter was able to preach to thousands of people without a sound system. You ever thought about, do you ever think about logistical things like that? No sound system, but thousands of people in a busy crowd, in a busy area, were able to hear him preach the gospel. It's because when you're standing on those marble steps, the walls behind you are marble as well, and it's like a natural amphitheater. So while he's standing on those steps, he's got solid marble walls behind him. They're still there. That part of the temple still exists. And while he's standing there, it's like he's got a natural amphitheater, and you can your voice is amplified naturally because of the, the way it's set up, just like an amphitheater does. So as a natural amphitheater, he was able to project over the crowd and they heard him. They heard him preach the gospel. But I love what happened. Their response is, is classic. Acts 8.12. What did the men and women who believed Philip's message do? Remember, Philip was an evangelist who also went out preaching the gospel. He went out teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom. He went from place to place. In Acts chapter 8, he's preaching. Acts 8.12 says this. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, what does it say? They were baptized, both men and women. So we don't see this break in the action. We just see, hey, what do I do next? And you know, that really should be the question we're asking. What next? What should I do next? How do I grow? What's the next step for me as a follower of Jesus? What is the next step? Number three, if you're looking at lesson, it's chapter three, lesson four on water baptism. Number three says this, after hearing the good news about Jesus, what did the Ethiopian eunuch want to do? Now remember, Philip, who is an evangelist, evangelist means he's one who proclaims the word, proclaims the message of Christ. He is translated supernaturally. Again, it's one of those Bible miracles that you're going, you don't say how, you just say wow, wow. 
I don't know how that happened, but wow. So he was translated, literally airlifted and airdropped to this Ethiopian eunuch. By the way, the Ethiopian eunuch was a, was a dignitary from Ethiopia. It wasn't just a, some guy riding along in a chariot. He was a dignitary, a representative, so to speak. And so look what happens, Acts 8, 35 and 6. It's on the screen. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him, he's, he's, the, the, the eunuch wants to know about the Scriptures, about the Bible. And he told them the good news about Jesus, verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Don't you love that heart? He heard the gospel and the good news, and he knew the next thing he needed to do was be baptized. I need to be cleansed. Cleansed. And so he says, what, I love another translation, he says, what prevents me from being baptized? The New Testament, this is still in lesson four, the New Testament uses four different illustrations to help us understand the significance of water baptism. So why is that important and what are these various metaphors that the scripture uses? Romans chapter six, which a lot of times when I'm baptizing something, I'll say, I baptize you, my brother or my sister, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then I'll say this, buried with Christ in baptism. Now, in our church, everyone's cheering so loud at this point, they don't hear me. But I do it anyway. I say, which I love that about the passion of our church in baptism. We should be cheering, right? All of heaven is, right? He says, the host of heaven, all of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. Isn't that awesome? So if heaven's cheering, we probably should be cheering right along. Amen? It's a beautiful thing. It should be a celebration. It's not a funeral. What well, kind of is? We're burying somebody in the water, but they're being raised to walk in newness of life. And that's what I say. I say, I now baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then I say this, and this is part of that Romans 6 passage. I baptize you, uh, I buried with Christ in baptism, and I lower them into the water. It's kind of funny because if, if they don't go all the way down, I find myself sort of pushing them down. That's the old Baptist in me. Got to get them all the way down. Bubbles and all. So, you know, buried with Christ in baptism, then raised to walk in newness of life. And that's quoting that, that, that passage there. I love that statement. We're buried with Christ in baptism, but we're raised to walk in newness of life. Isn't that beautiful? That's our call. That's our mission, that we're raised with Jesus. We're buried with him, but we're raised with him. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in and through me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. That's, that's what Paul was saying, is I've been crucified in Christ, and now I no longer live. So that's the picture of the old man dying and the new person being raised to walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are new creations in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? So I'm telling you, we should, we should go bonkers when we, do, when we do baptisms because it's the picture of what we're doing. We're being buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. That's burial and resurrection, Romans 6. The Israelites crossing the Red Sea when they escaped from Egypt. That is also a picture, an old 
Testament type and shadow of what was to come. When they crossed the Red Sea, the waters parted. They went through the water. The scripture, even in the New Testament, talks in terms in 1 Corinthians about them passing through the water. Yet another picture of baptism. They passed through the water. Now, they passed through the water as the children of God redeemed. Remember, this was before Jesus. This was the during the Exodus. But what happened to the Egyptians that were pursuing? They did not pass through the water. They passed away in the water because the sea closed on them and took their lives and protected the Israelites. So there's another picture, an Old Testament type and shadow of a New Testament reality. Circumcision, that's in Colossians chapter 2. Circumcision is a picture and a type and shadow, again, of baptism and the doing away with the old and that which is dead and the new coming forth. And then the flood. 1 Peter 3.20 in the New Testament, Peter talks about how the flood, even with Noah, and we preached on Noah last week, and we talked about how the, the flood was actually the idea of baptism, being immersed in water, being, again, water being that picture of presence of God and the cleansing power of God. There's something about taking a shower when, you're, when you've been nasty, stinky, out working all day, right? There's something about being cleansed, being made fresh, being made new. And so there's several ways that the scripture describes baptism. Number five, if you're following along in your purple book, lesson four, number five, Paul compares Christian baptism to a burial. In order to be buried, a person must first what? Die. Remember, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. He says, I've, I've died with Christ in the crucifixion, but I no longer live, live, but the life I now live, I live by faith. So a person must first die. What must we die to before we can be baptized? Romans 6 says this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, by no means. We died to sin. Look at this. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, he's going to keep going, so just stay with it. It's the same question there, number five. Romans 6.3 says this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we're buried with him, buried with him in baptism. So when someone's in the water and they're going down, it's the picture of the old person dying and a new person. I love that picture. That's why I get emotional every time we do baptisms. For one, I remember mine. I remember mine and just how, how when I came up out of the water, even though it's not mystical, it doesn't do anything per se, the picture of it, the metaphor of it is powerful. It's a tangible expression of an inward reality. So it's a beautiful thing. It says this, verse 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We are raised to walk in newness of life with Christ. So just as we're buried with him in baptism, we're raised with him in resurrection power. And so we now are not that old person. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 is such a powerful verse. It says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. A new creation. We get to live in a new creation reality. And that in Christ, all things are new. The old things, the old things are passed away. That's why it breaks my heart when I see a follower of Jesus 
who loves Jesus, who loves God, who reads their Bible, who prays, who loves to worship, and yet they continue to be attacked by echoes from the past. It breaks my heart to see someone in bondage to a past that has already been taken away in Christ. And yet, this is how smart the enemy is. If he can get you to believe a lie, you will live your life as though it's true. And that's why Sozo is so powerful, freedom ministry is so powerful, prayer ministry, prayer counseling is so powerful because in that, we, we walk through, we literally cut off those things. So those tethers, those bungee cords that attach us to the past are broken off in the name of Jesus. And we see the enemy who's a liar and the father of it, the scripture says. He was a murderer from the beginning in John chapter 8. And he was a liar and the father of it. So we know that his whole tool is not power, it's deception. If he can get you to believe a lie, then you'll believe you're the person you used to be. And you have to stop and say, wait a minute, I'm born again in Jesus, born of the Spirit, and I've been baptized. I was buried with Christ in baptism. I've been raised to walk. That is not me anymore. And a lot of times we operate under the residue of the past, but it's not real. It's, but we act as though it's real, so we empower it, but it's not real. It's a smokescreen. And that's the enemy's power, the power of deception. Is this making sense? You know, we've not really gone there on spiritual warfare here, but we probably need to take some time. I don't like to spend a lot of time in that because it's easy to have a runaway on that. And I've seen it over and over and over and over. Because people get a little bit entertained with some of this stuff, and I don't want to get entertained with the enemy. Amen? So there's wisdom and balance as we approach these things because we're not here to be entertained. We're here to be equipped to fight the good fight of faith and to walk in victory and to live an overcoming life so that when the world sees us overcoming the junk that we're having to, to live our lives through, they say, I want what you got. Whatever it is, I want that. That's called living a compelling life. So we probably need to spend some time doing, talking about and teaching on spiritual warfare from a healthy perspective. Amen? So that's, it's lining up in my mind. We'll do that. So we're buried with, Christ, with him through baptism and death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In the same way the Israelites, this is the next slide, in the same way the Israelites were in slavery to the Egyptians, we were all slaves of sin. Anybody remember before Jesus? I don't know about you, but I was in total bondage. Now, some of us, we get saved, we get born again, we get baptized, but then we fall back into bondage. Does that make sense? We do. We find ourselves reconnected, re-enslaved. Now we're like indentured servants. We're like willing now. We're willing participants because we actually have the power to break away from that, but we don't know we do because we've not been taught that. And so sometimes we fall back into it, but look what it says. In the same way the Israelites were in slavery to the Egyptians, we were all slaves of sin. The Israelites were freed from their bondage by passing passing through the Red Sea. Baptism pictures the freedom from sin that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. That's why we cry when we see somebody get baptized. Whether you knew that or not, you internally knew it. Your spirit knows it. And when we see somebody go into the waters of baptism, it resonates in our heart. That's why we just go, yes. Sometimes we don't even know why we're so excited about it, but what we're seeing is the picture of new life. We're getting, it, getting a metaphor. We're getting it played out. This is what's happening on the inside. 
we get to see it on the outside. And that's why we get excited. It's why we cheer. It's a beautiful thing because we're seeing freedom, and freedom resonates in all of our hearts, right? Not just because we're Texans, independent Texans, not just because we're Americans. Freedom in, resonates in our heart because we're followers of Jesus, and we were born to be free. Amen? All right. We'll keep going. Keep moving. Number 10, if you're going following along in your purple book, what is baptism a pledge of? 1 Peter 3, 18 and 21 says this, For Christ died for sins once for all. We could stop on that sentence right there. He died for sins once for all. That statement is loaded. That statement is so powerful. That's one of those statements that... If you're not careful, you'll read past that and miss the impact and gravity of it. That's one of those lines in the Bible that has massive implications. That if the ball drops for you and you get that, you're not going to walk the same. You're not going to talk the same. For Christ died for sins once for all. That means he died for my sins once and he died for all of my sins. Past, present, and future. Some of you are going, I don't get that. Listen, don't ask how, just say, wow. Just say, yay, God, thank you for your goodness that you love us so much that you've already covered my, my big piece of stupid I'm going to pull tomorrow is already covered in the name of Jesus. That is not an excuse to be stupid. But it's the, it's the I'm a human being being human sometimes, and that's not always bad, but sometimes it is, and it's... It's not that he's given us this free pass, but he has. It's a mystery, isn't it? But we are that free. And it bothers some Christians to say, you mean I'm free to sin? Yeah, you are, but why do you want to? If you're born again of the Spirit, that should not even be a desire in you. That should not even be a drive in you. Well, pastor, you should preach against sin. No, how about we preach Jesus and let Jesus do the cleaning? Let's let Jesus from the inside out convict people of sin. If I convict you of sin and talk you out of it, the devil won't talk you right back into it. But if the Holy Spirit living in you, dwelling in you, working in you, works himself out in you, and you're free in him, no devil in hell can talk you into it. See, here's the thing. I happen to trust Jesus in you. I'll tell you how this played out. When we were in Abilene, we were there for 10 years, and we had a lot of people come into our church that were not married, but they'd been living together. So, you know, in the old school, we'd say, oh, they're living in sin. Ooh, they're, you know, beware of them. Don't let your kids go around them. I mean, we just get weird about this stuff. So we made up our mind. We were going we to choose love. So we loved people that came to our church. How, Annette, how many weddings did we do in our church? I mean, it was like... Little tiny weddings, because like, people would come to me and say, Pastor, we're not married. And I'd go, I know. Now, you knew? I'm like, yeah. Um, we feel like God wants us to get married, and we realize we've, we've not been doing this right. And I'd say, well, when do you want to do it? Well, can you do it now? Yeah, let's get this done. Get her done, right? And we did several things on the spot. We did things within a week. And we would just have little beautiful ceremonies where people were stepping over the line to say, as a follower of Jesus, I can't live that way anymore. I don't want to live that way. I never once from the pulpit talked about living that way. Never once, never once did I come against that. Why? 
because my job isn't to point out sin. I'm not the morality police. I'm a preacher of good news, not bad news. I preach Jesus, and Jesus does the work. Do we trust Jesus in the lives of people enough? Or are we taking the road of pleasing God, or are we taking the road of trusting God? Which is it? You can't take them both. If we're taking the road of pleasing God, then we're going to get in there and do the work for him. I'm going to work for God. Or we take the road of trusting God, and we trust that if we will get Jesus to people, he will do the work in them. And let me tell you, you won't be able to hold them back. It's Katie bar the door, because once a person like that gets free, not because somebody talked them into it, guilted them into it, shamed them into it, condemned them into it. It's because the Holy Spirit himself is leading them step by step out of that bondage. And you cannot hold those people back. So this Sunday, I had a lady come up to me in tears. And she said, with her little daughter standing with her, and she said, Pastor Jimmy, she said, I need to get married. And she said, my husband and I aren't married. She started weeping. And she said, we just set a terrible example for our daughter. And she said, I realize we've been living in sin. And I said, when are we going to do it? So we're doing it in June. Isn't that beautiful? No one told her that. No one got on a soapbox and railed against her, railed against them living in sin. It was the Holy Spirit doing his work. As she's getting more full of Jesus, more full of truth, you'll know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. We let the truth do the work. And remember, truth is not a concept, it's a person. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So the truth sets people free. We have to trust Jesus enough. We are not the morality police. Amen? Jerry, you got something there, brother? Yeah, it comes up frequently. You can talk about the theory that you're saved and that's a carte blanche and license of sin. That's a nice Thank you, Attorney Jerry. <laughs> no, he literally is a trial lawyer, and I love that. For one, he keeps me on my toes, but two, I love it the way he thinks because he sees the logic and goes, oh, that logic train takes me there. So I love that. So think about what he just said. He said, once, you, once you're there, it just it, it happens in you. It's, it's something that comes out of you naturally. So now we, we obey him because we love him and we want to, not because we're afraid of retribution. That is no way to live. That is not the joyful life that, that the whole book of Philippians talks about, nor is it the abundant life that's talked about in John chapter 10. that says, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, or have life to the full. Full life is when you're full of Jesus so much that you don't have room for anything else. And so our goal isn't to... Isn't to modify our behavior. We're not behavior into behavior modification. That's, cults do that. We don't do that. We get you Jesus and then let Jesus do what Jesus wants to do. And here's the hard part, and none of us like this part, 
in his timing. In his timing. Not ours. Not what we prefer. Not what we want. I tell you story after story, even right here, just in the three years I've been here, where I've seen Jesus move in, take up residence in a person's life, and nothing changed for a year. They just kept down the same track, and yeah, I'm going, God, I guess, it, and I'll even, old school me, well, I don't, maybe that didn't take. But Jesus, under the surface, is working. Under the surface. When we lived in Southern California, and I was a West Texas boy going out in the surf for the first time, I didn't understand about riptides and undercurrents until I got out in the water, and I'm bouncing along, having a great time, and I look up, and I don't recognize the landscape. I bounced a mile down the beach and didn't even know it because this undercurrent was just taking me, moving me, moving me, moving me. On the surface, I had no idea. I thought I was jumping up and down in one spot. Has that ever happened to anybody else? If you're from Texas and you're going down to the coast, just, just be aware of that. There's movement going on whether you see it or not. In the kingdom, God is always moving. He's always moving. You feel like you're hopping up and down and you're like, I am going nowhere. But what you don't realize is he's moving you along. You don't have to know it for it to be true. Amen? The truth is truth, and it's not even contingent on what we feel or believe. The truth is the truth, and he's moving. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's Jesus for us. To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, and as are we. Amen? Verse 21. And this water, again, talking about baptism, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the power is not in the water washing dirt off your body. The, the power is in the resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Christ. That's why I don't wear a cross around my neck and I don't have a problem with anybody who does. But if I was going to wear any jewelry, it would be an empty tomb and that would just look weird on a necklace. But that's what I live life out of, is the, the empty grave, the empty tomb. There's just no good way to make that look on your body. But, but I don't live towards the cross. I live away from it. I'm thankful for the cross because it got us to the resurrection. The cross was a brutal thing, and it was even a scandal. It was scandalous. But it led us to the most beautiful thing on the planet, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We now live life out of the resurrection. We don't have to live from before the cross looking toward the cross. We get to live back from the resurrection looking at the empty tomb and say, thank you, Jesus, for life, life. Because that's what the resurrection is all about, life. The cross was about death. The resurrection, the empty tomb is about life, and we live from life. Amen? Does that make sense? Listen to this. Peter teaches that it is not the removal of dirt from the body that saves us. In other words, it is neither the act of baptism nor the water of baptism. Rather, it is, quote, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us. Once again, we see the scriptures teaching that we are saved by what Jesus did, his death and resurrection, not by what we do, water baptism. Peter goes on to say that baptism is the pledge of a clear conscience. There are denominations and groups that have leaned over into believing that baptism is the saving act. I'm sorry I don't see it in the scriptures. I just don't. It's not there. 
what saves us is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We're raised to walk in newness of life because of the resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is the picture of that, not the act of that. Does that make sense? Each of the Bible's pictures of baptism show the old life being put away and a new life emerging. In baptism, we publicly display what Jesus did through his death and resurrection. We also show that we have identified with this. That's what we're doing. We're saying to the world, I'm identifying with Jesus, and here's a picture of what's already happened in me. Now I'm going to show you a picture of this. And what it is, baptism is not only a testimony to the world, it's a testimony to the church to encourage the church as well. So it's a beautiful thing. So when people ask me if they can have a private baptism, what do I tell them, Amy? <laughs> when I first got here, I mean, literally, I'd probably been here a few weeks. Amy? No. <laughs> Jason and Amy came to me, and they were like being real discreet, and Amy was just like terrified of being seen in public, like all right now, I'm calling her out, and uh, she was terrified, and so she very kindly asked me, I, I want to be baptized, but I want to do it in private, and I said, oh, that's wonderful, no. <laughs> That misses the whole point. So I sat down with Amy, she, then she explained that she had a phobia about just being pointed out, like right now, like what I'm doing, the anxiety of all that. So it was just a real debilitating thing that she was struggling with. And I felt like two things are going to happen here. She's going to get baptized and the church is going to go wild and cheer. And two, she's going to break the bondage of that off her life. She's going to have a breakthrough. And so I was very firm but loving and said, no, this is to be pub done publicly because if we do it privately, all of our church family doesn't get to celebrate with you. And, and you wouldn't want to hold that back from all of us, would you? <laughs> now, no. Now, no. But you know what? Amy went through with it, and it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And I've watched Jason and Amy walk with Jesus over these three years that we've been here, and I'm just watching them grow. I'm watching them soar. I'm watching them take steps, and it's been a beautiful thing. It took. It's working, and it's life-changing. And we're going to keep walking, right? One, one step in front of the other. We also show that we have identified with this. That, that's where identifying with Jesus. By obeying his command to be baptized, we identify with the power of the cross and resurrection to deliver us completely from the power and authority of sin. Did you know every person in this room who has followed Jesus and accepting Christ, making him the Lord of their life, filled with the Spirit, followed in believer's baptism, every one of you have been given now authority over sin. Sin no longer is your master. No longer your master. That doesn't mean you're not stumbling through some stuff right now. Doesn't mean you're, you're, you're tripping up. Remember, no perfect people allowed on that wall right there. It's invisible, but it's there. But you see it. I think we're all starting to see it. But, but listen, sin is not your master. Sin is not your master. Jesus is. He's Lord. We already talked about that in the Lordship section. So as we walk out of here tonight, just think for a minute about your baptism. I think about, I had two of them. I got baptized when I was in the sixth grade, but it was sort of a kind of a last minute deal, and I honestly did not understand. I was just 
went to a slumber party with a bunch of guys. The mom loaded us up and took us to church. I didn't even see it coming. Got blindsided. All this knuckleheaded boys went forward. I was actually serious. I was listening to what the preacher said. So I know I had an encounter with Jesus. I was introduced to Jesus. I don't know if I was saved that night or not. I don't really care. All I know is that a few years later, is right at the end of my senior year in high school, I know I was born again then, for sure. For sure. I think I just was introduced to Jesus like you meet somebody. Hey, Jesus, I'm Jimmy. Yeah, I know. You know Jesus, okay, good to meet you. And then I kind of went about my merry business because I didn't get discipled. I didn't, but I did go through with baptism, but literally no clue, no understanding. But at 19, when I did, it was like, boom. And everything changed. Everything flipped. So when I think about my baptism, particularly the one when I was 19, Pastor Reese, he's passed on, gone to be with the Lord. But I remember him. Oh, his daughter was in my, my age, Tammy, and she, to this day, I'm just so grateful for that family, for loving me, loving this rough kid, this rough football playing, motocross racing, high school kid into Jesus and being patient with me because I was, I was one of the wild ones. And they loved me into Christ. They were patient with me. And that started my journey. I don't know if Pastor Reese ever knew that I went into the ministry and, you know, continued down the track. I don't know. I think he knows now, somehow, some way, I hope. But uh, I'm so thankful for their investment in my life. So can we pray together? And as we do, can you just picture your baptism? Why don't you think back? Just And if you're here and, and that's something that's been percolating in your spirit that you haven't followed through with and you need to, let's talk. Let's talk. Yes, ma'am? Wanda? Certainly. Let me give you the microphone real quick. I was uh, baptized as an infant, sprinkled. And uh, when I was in my 50s, my husband was on staff as an ordained pastor at Second Baptist in Houston, and he baptized me. It was, it was so beautiful. It was just precious. Huh? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing it. Just think about your baptism. Like I said, if you need to follow that and take that next step, let me know. Let me know. We can make that happen. I already have somebody ready to go, so we can, we can get that thing going pretty quick. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the privilege of baptism and the picture that it affords us of seeing the old person dying, being buried with Christ, and the new person being raised with resurrection power to newness of life, to live a new life. And Father, thank you, Lord, that we get to be disciples and we get to teach people and lead people through this and help them understand. So Father, if there's anyone here or anyone in our, in our larger body of Christ here, Father, give us grace to open doors and create an on-ramp so that it's easy for people to take that step and to follow you in believer's baptism. So we pray, pray for a continued outpouring of your spirit of evangelism and bringing people into new life in Jesus. And Father, thank you for what you're doing among us, in us, and what you want to do through us. We submit to that. And I thank you for each person that's here. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen and amen. God bless you. Love you all.